I want to open by talking to you about a very difficult time in my life. Um, the way that my family uh, many times handled conflict when I was a young man um, was, uh, was, I would say, probably fairly healthy. Um, I remember many arguments when I was an adolescent where doors slammed. I remember our arguments when I was an adolescent where swear words were uttered in our home. People got upset with each other. And um, I remember the time that my father, after my mother had died, married a, a, another woman. And my dad and I um, had uh, many, many disagreements about many things about this relationship. And um, uh, while we were in the midst of this dispute, he and I, um, we went to, and we had a family trip in Florida. And uh, we were... Uh, doing the, uh, the thing that all of us do very well, and I was the one leading the charge on it, and it was this. There's issues between us, but I'm not going to go talk about the issues with my father. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to everybody else about the issues with my father. And so I decided to uh, use a weapon in conflict resolution that uh, we all use very, very well. It's an extremely sharp weapon that all of us have honed, and it's called the silent treatment. Have you ever used it before? And I wanted him, through the silent treatment, to in some way, well, maybe he would come, and he would come over to me and say these words, uh, Son, what's wrong? And as a result of him coming to me and saying, son, what's wrong? Then I'm immediately in kind of the power position at that point, aren't I? If somebody can come to me and say, what's wrong? Then I can kind of vomit all over the situation and feel in some sense I get some compassion or whatever the case may be back from my father. So finally, I did the spiritual thing. You know, hey, we need to talk. And he says, yeah, I think we do need to talk. And I said, I'll start. I don't like you. He said, oh, that's a relief. I don't like you either. <laughs> what are you talking about? How could people not like me? <laughs> Kid me? I love me. but I do love you. Well, that's good, son, because I, I love you too. And we begin to talk, and there was kind of like snotty crying and ugly things and good things. You know that uh, many of you uh, sitting here today, you, you all have um, uh, ways in which you handle disputes Many of the ways that many of you handle your disputes in your marriages, with your friends, with your family, are usually dictated by the very ways that you've been raised. And many of those ways are very bent and wrong and not healthy in a spiritual sense or in a relational sense. And many of you, you don't necessarily recognize this, 
but it's really true about your life. And today, you're going to have an opportunity to take a little bit of an inventory. As you look at these people in Corinth, this book that we're going through, these people are in conflict with one another. And I want to open this up for us today and talk with us a little bit about this. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we are in the series. Look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Look what Paul says. He says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels, he says? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, verse 4, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another brother, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. And then he says something extremely interesting, and something that's a concept that you and I don't, we know about, but we don't practice. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. There's three concepts that I want us to understand today. And the first concept that I want to talk with you about is also something that we don't talk a lot about, but it's the concept called communal witness. Communal witness. Corporate witness. And let me try to explain it to you. One of the great functions of the church is that of corporate and communal witness to a dying world. God has gathered a chosen group of people to represent Him in His glory to the world. First Peter describes these people, us, as you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. A people for His own possession. That you may, look what it says, that you may proclaim, listen to what it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are, and it's a body, we are holy proclaimers. We are people See if you can follow this. We are people who are together, 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 singing the Lord's song in a strange land. We are people who are together singing the Lord's song in a strange land. The Bible has a teaching, and the teaching is you are not your own any longer, sister, brother. You belong to the church. You belong to the royal priesthood. You belong to the ecclesia. You belong to the bride. You're a part of a whole. We're a choir that has no solo acts. 
We are many voices, but we are one voice. It's a very unique and different message than the message that you hear every day in the world which says, you're your own. You're your own bank account. You're your own job. You have time to do whatever you want to do. You, you make a decision to do it, you do it. Scripture says, no, you're part of a people, and these people represent me to the world. And Paul is concerned about these people and the witness that they have to the world. What does the world think about me, God, and my glory? When they see you behaving the way you're behaving, and all you're doing is fighting with one another. All you're doing is fighting. You're disputing over things. And so the world, which, by the way, held the church in Corinth in very low esteem, did nothing more than wink their eye and say, yep, that's those Christians again. And my question for you is, has anything changed? When you think about witness, you think about the concept of witness, and yes, I am talking about the idea that there's a dying world out there that needs to hear the life-giving message of Jesus. Do we ever think about the possibility that our relationships and the way that our marriages work, the way that we dispute and handle conflict with one another as friends and our family could actually, actually be one of the greatest tools to speak to a dying world about a loving God? Have you ever thought about that? Could it actually be true that God would want to use your marriage and the way you handle and talk with and deal with your wife, the way you handle and talk and deal with your husband as a means by which he would want to communicate to the world that there is a group of people who live on this earth that are different than you? I want to speak life to those people. And you're a part of this corporate witness. You're a part of it. Your attitudes, now follow now, your attitudes and actions are not what you think they are. They're not just your own. They're going to affect people. It's like throwing the stone in the water and the ripples moving out. Your attitudes and behaviors have ripple effect on people. They have ripple effects on your children. They have ripple effect on your neighbors. They have ripple effect on the employees that you work with, the people that understand you. If you're a young person here who goes out on the weekends and lives like hell and comes in here and tries to practice heaven on Sunday morning, wouldn't it be right for those friends to think of you as you're kind of a hypocrite? And you need to know that when they do that, they make indictments on a greater issue than just you. They say things like, those Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites because they've seen you or they've seen me with an attitude or an action. Do you follow what I'm saying? And Paul is very concerned about this issue. You're not your own. You're the church. And few things impair the witness of the church more than broken relationships. The way that we handle issues with each other. Few things impair the church more, I think, than broken relationships. And we could all tell stories about how terrible the church is. 
Is this something? I guess I got to ask this question. <laughs> Is this something that we even care about? <laughs> I had to ask that this week. I thought, are you kidding me? Do we, do, are there going to be people who actually sit in front of me and, and would hear me say that and go, wow, I'm, I'm concerned about the corporate witness of the church? That's crazy. You don't, we don't think like that. And that's, that's one of our problems. So this concept of communal witness, this concept of what Paul's trying to communicate to them is an important concept that he wants them to understand. Now, what's the problem? Point two. What's the problem? What's the problem going on with these believers in Corinth? Well, I guess the big warning that I would give to you is this. The problem that they're facing is the problem that we have. I know that doesn't surprise you. Let's see if you can make some of the connections. These Christians in Corinth had strayed so far, so far away from the way of forgiveness. They had strayed so far away from the way of love that they didn't even know it. They had lost all moorings to understand what the original call on them was as a chosen people. They didn't even know it. They, were, they had strayed so far away that they had literally become obtuse to the very truth that they had been taught. Have you, have you ever felt that before? And by the way, some of, a lot of us in this room, it's, it's probably true of us. They had moved so far from the supernatural reality of, of mutual love and relationships that these things even began to spill over in their little business dealings and social ethics. One author said that this group of people were a self-absorbed, proud, and competitive people. Huh. Do you know how self-absorbed people handle conflict? They don't. They're too busy drinking their own Kool-Aid. They don't care about anybody else's perception as it relates to their life. They could really care less. Have you actually gotten to the place in your marriage amongst your friends that nobody has a voice in your life? Have you actually got to the place where you're so self-absorbed with you and your schedule, you're so narcissistic that nobody could say anything to you, that nobody's voice, nobody's perception actually is, could possibly be the right perception? Really? I do. By the way, do you, do you know how proud people handle conflict? I'm right. What, what, what's the issue? What, what are you talking about, honey? I don't, I don't get it. I'm right. I'm right. I'm righteous. E-O-U-S. I'm self-righteous. 
I'm right. I'm right. You're wrong. Done. Let's go have lunch. Is that us? Why are we so concerned about our rights? Or being right in this instance? Why, why, why do we want this? Have you ever uh, tracked it back to the fact that maybe we just need to repent of our pride? That we're a proud people? By the way, do you know how competitive people handle conflict? Competitive people handle conflict like this. I win. A conflict to them with their wife or their friend or their dad or their stepmom is all about one thing. It's called winning. They want to win. They want the other person to literally go down in defeat and for a mark on the scorecard to say, you won. And that's what was going on with these people. A self-absorbed, proud, competitive people. My father always said that if you really want to know what's going on in Christians' lives and how Christians are, is go to a church softball game. You ever gone to one? It's really ugly. Think about that for a minute. Nine guys on a field that care more about winning a stupid game than possibly about being an example of Jesus Christ. Think, just think about the utter ridiculousness of what I just said. Can you consider it for a minute? If you can, could you consider this for a minute? Think about the crazy things that we're arguing about in our marriages and our homes. Think about it. Are you serious? Or amongst our friends? Wouldn't Paul say the same thing to us? Lastly, these people, they were, the problem was, was that they were obsessed with their rights. Are you this person? I've got rights, you know? This is the big, this is the big person that walks around, we all have it. It's the scale thing. This is the, I want parity. I want equality. I have my rights. You, I'm going to speak what I need, and this is it, and you better respect them. Do you know, how, um, you know how they catch monkeys in the jungle? They get these gourds, and it, the gourd has a long neck on it, and they hollow out the gourd, and they take in the gourd, they take a bunch of fruit, and they put it in the, in the bottom of the gourd, and they take it and they put it in the jungle and they stake it to the ground and they go and hide behind the bushes and the monkeys come out and they take their paw or whatever it is and they stick it down into that neck and grab a hold of the fruit. And as soon as they grab a hold of the fruit, the hunters come out from behind the bushes and grab them. They could easily pull their hand out from the gourd, but they don't want to because they can't imagine letting go of the fruit. So they're captured easily. I'm the monkey. You're the monkeys. Good group, by the way. We're all monkeys. Because guess what? Do you know what? You know what many of us do? Many of us in this room are holding on so desperately to the fruit of our own bitterness that we're literally captured and indentured. Some of us in this room are holding on to things 
that happened years ago that we will never let go. We're holding on to that fruit. And as a result of holding on to that fruit, we have vindictive grudges that eat our soul, that rob us of our beautiful creativity, and that suck the joy right out of our lives. Once in our marriages or as a group of people, once Christians become obsessed with their rights instead of their responsibilities, there will be untold trouble until they find the way to true repentance. <coughs> Lastly, is there a different way to handle conflict? Well, Paul would say, uh, yes, there's a different way to handle conflict. You, you deal with conflict differently, follow this, because you're different. So my dad used to say when I left the house, he'd say this on a Friday night when I was a teenager, he'd, he said this all the time. Remember, remember what your last name is. Because what he was doing was he was appealing to my identity as a, as a, in a whole and as that he wanted me to understand my life differently. That I don't have the same rules that are going on that maybe my friends had or the same, by the way, boundaries or the same goals or the same values. It just doesn't have to be rules. It's, it's beautiful and it's in what he was saying. So Paul would say, well, yeah, you handle it differently because you are different. Do you believe that you're different? So Paul then goes on there, and in, in verse 7, he says something absolutely, like, insane. And something that we, we, don't, we don't even want to think about this. He says in verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. And then he says this, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Well, okay, maybe, maybe Paul had heard Jesus say, um, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So he, he's saying something like, can you think about, think it whole another way about your life, that you're not your own. You've got to lose. You, you throw the softball game. You, you give it up. Somebody said that, uh, yeah, have you heard somebody say this? The cross, that's, that's a cross that I bear. You ever heard anybody say that? I've said that many times. That's my burden. That's a cross. I just want you to know that the cross is, is, is surely a burden, but that's not, the, that's not the chief message of the cross. The chief message of the cross that we would take on that Jesus is talking about is death. It's complete death. And it's something we don't like to talk about. Jesus had another way of teaching us about, or about our disputes, and it's found in Matthew 5, 23. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. He says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, 
And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Are you kidding me? So the Bible is saying that reconciliation actually precedes worship. Before you can go to the altar, you need to be right with your brother. You need to be right with your sister. If we have broken relationships, the Scriptures actually command us to be reconciled first. James goes on to talk about us being peace lovers, to reconcile. When was the last time that you just decided to lose and to be reconciled? When was the last time, uh, husbands, that you just decided to say, I'm... I want to close the space between me and my wife. I want to close it. I want to, cl- I want to be reconciled. Wives, how about you? I'm going to tell you something that's extremely important here. This is something that we don't do too well. It's extremely important that you understand in this verse that this verse doesn't give regard to who is at fault. Let me read the verse again. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. What, Paul's, what Jesus is teaching here is that the concept isn't about who's at fault. And we do that, don't we? Well, <laughs> you know, this is the scale thing. This is the my rights thing. This is the self-absorbed thing. Well, you know, that's your stuff. You know, when you, when you, when you get that right, you know, then you come talk to me. It's on you. The burden's on you. It's all on you. And then I can kind of act like a little free bird until you get right, Leonard Skinner. Act like a little free bird, right? Yeah, man. I'm out there just rocking and loving it. Well, then when you come to me, you know. Right? Is that, is that it? No, no, no. This idea is if there's legitimate issues, and if, and if the Lord brings these issues to mind, you in all humility go. Now, in closing, I want to talk to you a little today. I want to challenge you on something because I read this this last week. It really helped me. When Paul's talking about this idea of being wronged and being willing to be defrauded, he's really talking about a people that are living very surrendered lives. They're losers. In fact, uh, Malcolm Muggridge, one of my very favorite authors, said this, We are henceforth to worship defeat, not victory, failure, not success, surrender, not defiance, and weakness and not strength. We are to lose our lives in order to keep them, to die in order to live. Listen to this. I, I surrender. Something inside of us despises the thought of surrendering and of quitting. Ah, but surrendering and quitting are two different concepts. Quitting says, I don't care. Surrendering says, I care. Quitting says, I can't. Surrendering says, I can't, God can. Quitting is often repressed or expressed anger. Surrendering is expressed love. The mate who quits falls for divorce. The the spouse who says, I surrender, seeks counseling and accountability. 
The person who quits becomes an agnostic or an atheist and leaves the church. The individual who surrenders says, God, whatever it takes for my will to break, do it. The quitter says, the quitter says, to hell with God. If he won't tell me, I'll do it my way. The person who surrender asks, I love this. I love this. I can't tell you how much I love this. Listen to this. The person who surrenders asks, where is the hell in me? Think about that. You asked that question of yourself recently? Where is the hell in me, Lord? Is all my issues and all my issues of conflict resolution and my problems about other people giving me the sham, other people ruining me, hurting me, saying this to me, where's the hell in me? What do you want? Here I am. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. You listening? Am I? I, I want you to know, thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> thank you. I, I'm glad that people are not listening. That helps. <laughs> we needed a little comedy relief, didn't we? A word to the church, a word to Midtown, the bride, a word to the bride Midtown that I really love. She's got a really dirty dress, but she's still the bride. She's got a lot of holes, but she's still the bride. I love her. She's got a lot of issues. Okay, she's still the bride, and I'm in it too. I'm right there too, in, in with it. But I want, you to, I want to give a word to especially those people that are Midtowners. Really, really concerned about our marriages. I really am. And I'm not just talking about one or two people that I'm talking about. I'm talking about ever since I hit the ground here. And I'm talking about my marriage too. I can't believe, I can't believe how many of our marriages are in deep and desperate hole of dispute. People hanging on to their pride. People hanging on to their rights. People not knowing what it looks like to just, and I'm not talking about handling conflict in the right way. We need to handle conflict in the right way. I'm talking about what would it actually look like in our relationships for us to walk in a way of surrendering. What would it look like? Many, many of the marriages that I talk to and that I'm with, many of them, uh, have, have literally gotten to the point in their dispute where it doesn't actually matter what their husband says. doesn't actually matter what their wife says. They're so closed off to one another. Is that the way that God has for us? Is that the way of love? Is that the way of forgiveness? Men, what about you? What about me? Do I hear the biblical call to love my wife? as Christ loved the church? Or are all my relationships and my problems with my wife because she doesn't do her part of the verse, which is submit to me? Is that what it is? Ladies, in your marriages, is there a leader in your home? Are you the one? Or are you submitting to your husband as the head of your home?
Is that the dispute? What is it? Let me challenge you and ask you, what would it look like in the most beautifully merciful, awesome gospel way to come together and face each other and talk and truly listen to each other? Because God's given you the power to do that. Am I talking to you today about a bunch of conflict resolution skills? No. I'm talking to you about a deeper principle. See, because surrendered people that surrender themselves and are surrendered to the Lord, they act differently in their relationships. When my daughter was two years old, after church, as happens here, and I love it, the kids run around. And they get, and they get worn out, you know. You love to look at the kids, and actually all the parents, you know, everybody else is going, those dirty, rotten kids, you know. The parents are going, I love it. Wear them out. Take them home, put them to bed. <laughs> so a lot of things happening. But, the, you know, she, she'd run around, and, or all of them would. They'd run around, and they'd get crazy. And then, and then, she'd, then the, they'd come to me, and they'd, go, they'd do this. And they'd go, up, Daddy. Right? Well, they were doing that because they were tired. And they're weak. And they're, they're saying, I'm too little. I don't want to do this anymore, right? Pick me up. Carry me. Help me. And what I'm talking to you about today is that. I'm talking to you about this idea of having a spirit of brokenness that helps us in our lives reach out to our Father. And this says to our Father, Up, Daddy. I'm sick of fighting. Carry me. I'm weak. I'm too little. I'm too little to do it on my own. I surrender. It's a good word for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, um, for your word. And, and um, thank you for <clears throat> the realistic example of these people that are in front of us that really remind us a lot of ourselves. And Lord, we, we're people that so desperately um, and so daily need to, need to repent of so much of the hell inside of us. I know that for me... I, I can, my focus uh, so much seems to be on me and my agenda and my rights and so many things that are in conflict with you and the supernatural way that you want me to work and operate with my friends and with my wife and with my family. And, and so I, I confess that. And I ask uh, for your forgiveness. And uh, Lord, I pray um, that uh, even today you would, you would reveal to us what it would look like for us to be peace lovers and what it would look like for us to be reconcilers. Um, and uh, I pray that um, you would just continue to see so fit to, to pour the mercy on our lives that we so badly need. As David prayed in Psalm 51, your abundant mercy. We need it, Lord. We thank you in your name. Amen.